Father, I want to thank you for this day that you've given us an opportunity to love you, an opportunity to hear from your word, to worship as a church. And um, we just uh, pray that you'd bless this time, that uh, again, you would be glorified, but that we would be changed. We wouldn't just simply hear this truth and then just go on our merry way, Lord, but that this truth uh, would stick like Velcro, Lord, that it would uh, penetrate our hearts and our minds and that we would live in light of this amazing truth that Paul's going to uh, bring up. Um, it is a challenge, but uh, Lord, we, it is not an, an impossible challenge. So I want to thank you again for your word and just, uh, Holy Spirit, just help me to be able to deliver it uh, effectively, uh, accurately, and uh, again, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there are some things in the past that should remain in the past. There are things that have come and gone and should just stay gone and dead. I have a couple of pictures to show you. Exhibit A, go ahead to the next slide. Shag carpet. <laughs> uh, this is something that came. It was when it, when it came onto the scene, it was very popular, very hip. Yeah, shag carpet. Oh my goodness. This is an ad from uh, when the, the shag carpet was very popular, and it's in all those different shades of vomit uh, up there on there. It's like, yes, you've got two different uh, forms of green. You've got uh, lime touch and then green finch, which is different colors of bile there. Um, and, anyways, it's just. It was, it, I, how many of you had shag carpet? Oh, yes, the Bible says confess your sins one to another. How many of you have visited a home where they still have the original shag carpet? Oh, yes. You're like, they're all coming to the dining room and you're like, you don't want to because you could see there's something alive in that shag carpet, right? It's like you're going to step in and ah, kind of thing. It's like, no. It was here, it was nice, let's, let's let, let it go. Exhibit B, carpeted bathrooms. <laughs> carpeted, oh yes, everyone's just shaking their head. This was a thing. It's like, oh yeah, carpet your bathrooms, it's cheaper. Well, it's more bleh, disgusting. Yes, Kathy, you're bleh. everyone knows. You've cleaned a bathroom, you know what happens in a bathroom. If you have kids... Oh, they don't know how to aim. How are you supposed to clean that? It's gross, disgusting. And if you notice this picture, it's uh, covered in shag carpet. So it's a double offense right there. It's just crazy. Move on to the next one. Exhibit C. 1980s style. Oh. I was born in 1984. I experienced mid to late 80s. And let me tell you, ah, no thank you. No thank you. I mean, the, the color scheme was just so like Dr. Seuss or, you know, I don't know. It's just Where's Waldo kind of coloring. It's just really bright and vivid. And, and everyone, did anyone ever wear uh, stonewashed jeans with the elastic waistband? Anyone? Yeah, everyone did. It was like the hip thing. To, I have pictures of myself as a kid wearing this monstrosity right here. And uh, those you will never see. What about the hairdo of this person? I mean, my goodness. I mean, I, I remember my aunts had this same hairstyle. And even as a little kid, I was going, what happened? You know, it looks like, you know, you're in a windstorm and you got uh, struck by lightning. It was the hip thing. It's like, oh, yeah, everyone wore this. And, you know, the 10 layers of makeup and just, yeah, and dancing to Michael Jackson and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> now again these have come they've gone they and at least in my opinion they should just stay gone but aside from carpeted bathrooms okay that has not really come back to fashion everything else shag carpet and 80 styles there's been a resurgence I mean, you go to Home Depot and Lowe's or any other carpet store, and what do you see is, you know, shag carpet, along with all the different tones of vomit colors that you can find. And they call it their vintage style. Oh, vintage. It's vintage. Uh, you can go around and you see young kids, kids who were born in the 2000s, 
wearing 1980s clothing, the stonewashed jeans with the elastic waistband and, you know, the, the bright colors and their hair kind of weird. And you're just like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're vintage. And I take offense at that because I'm 1980s right there. It's like, how dare you? It's like, no, vintage. It's, 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 not, it's not cool. It's, it's not vintage. It's just bleh. It was here. It needs to go. But the thing is, that's the kind of world that we live in. The kind of world that we live in is just constantly repeating itself. It's constantly going kind of like in a, in a circle. You know, we will go into one fad, to another fad, to another, but it's really the fad a couple of decades ago. It just keeps on going around and around and around. You know, uh, last night I, I read a, a, an article um, written maybe two years ago or three, I forget where. Um, but I was struck because the, the, the journalist uh, said that out of all the generations that have come and gone, uh, our generation, referring to younger generation and, and so forth, um, prove, are, look like they're going to be the most progressive generation that has ever hit the Western culture. I thought that was a pretty, uh, you know, pretty intense statement to make. Like they're, oh, we're, they're progressing, we're moving forward. But the, the truth is, Humanity is not progressing, we're regressing. We're not evolving, we're de-evolving. We're not moving forward, we're constantly moving backwards. We're constantly moving back to the old way of doing things. It may look a little bit different, it may sound a little bit different, it may have a different you know, packaging, a different layer of pay, a, you know, coat of paint over it, but it's still the same thing. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter one. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, we believe, was written by King Solomon. King Solomon started off his reign pretty hopeful. Uh, the Lord blessed him with supernatural wisdom, uh, but then through a series of compromises, he eventually, uh, hit, well, the last portion of his, of his uh, rule was, was not that, that good. And while we don't have a, a specific account of Solomon repenting of his behavior and his choices and his falling away from the Lord, uh, we do have the book of Ecclesiastes, which we believe that's kind of Solomon at the end of his life, looking back, saying, you know, you know, speaking to the next generation, don't follow in my same patterns. Don't uh, become, uh, don't do what I did. And what, Paul, what Solomon did is he, he, he went on, a, on an exploration of what this world has to offer. Looking for meaning, looking for significance, looking for purpose. He says, what, what does this world has to offer? And, and in, in chapter 1, here Solomon, he refers to himself as the preacher or the speaker of the assembly. Uh, he gives his conclusion. The conclusion. So let's, let's just read together a few verses from chapter 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In verse 2, here's his conclusion. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word there that, that um, Solomon uses is the Hebrew word hebel, or hebel, depending on how you pronounce it. But it basically means a mist, a vapor, a fog. It's Paul, uh, Solomon is, is using it uh, to refer to something that has no substance, has no weight, has no significance, has no meaning, has no purpose. Now, don't get Solomon wrong. He, he, he does agree that God created some good things that can be enjoyed. But the only way to enjoy those good things correctly is when God is the source of our meaning, purpose, and significance in life. If we're just pursuing, as, as Solomon says, life under the sun, apart from God, then life is just vanity. It's just meaningless. It's empty. Continuing on, verse 3. What advantage does man have in all of his labor in which he labors under the sun? Is there any advantage? The, question, the answer is, of course not. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. The word for hastening is the idea that the sun is like kind of personifying the sun. Like it, once it sets, it runs really, really fast to, you know, start the whole cycle all over again. Like it's just constantly doing this whole thing over again and again and again. Uh, verse 6, going uh, toward the south and circling toward the north, the wind goes circling along, and on its circular courses, the 
the wind returns. All the rivers go into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers go, there they continually go. It's this, again, this idea of cycle. Life is a circle. You know, you have uh, precipitation becomes clouds, and then it goes over mountains, becomes snow, and then it melts, and it flows into rivers and streams, goes into lakes, and eventually the ocean, where once again, the cycle begins again. It's precipitation, clouds, that kind of thing. It's just over and over. Nothing seems to change. Nothing humanity does is changing or breaking that cycle. The sun still goes from one side of the, 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 the sky to the other side. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. No one's satisfied. Everyone's wanting more and more and more. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is, it is new. Already it has been for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things. And also of the later things which will be, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. It's like, oh, that's a lovely, cheerful passage to read, you know, before, you know, celebration or something. It's like vanity of vanities. All basically what the, the picture, you can get in your mind of how Solomon is describing life is this endless treadmill, this futile treadmill that one generation jumps on the treadmill, runs with all of its might, dies, falls off, and another generation jumps on the same treadmill and does the exact same thing. They're never moving forward. They're never advancing. They're just constantly in this stuck, in this loop, this futile loop. Spiritually speaking, and by the way, that, that's our world. Again, that, that's the world that we live in. You know, so, so many people were shocked this past, uh, last weekend, when on live television on a ceremony, someone slapped another individual. <gasps> it's like, that has happened before. I mean, just go back a couple of decades, maybe even last year. You know, it's, it's, hap- it's not anything new. You know, things are coming out in, in, in society. Things that used to be behind closed doors and kept hush-hush, now it's kind of being publicly displayed and celebrated. And you have a CEO of a really big major company explaining their agenda of what they're going to do and how they're going to advance their behavior and lifestyles and all that. Everyone's just shocked. Ah! There's nothing new under the sun. The, the world that we live in isn't any different than what the first Christians experienced in the first century. It may look different. It may sound different. It may be repackaged, have a different coat of paint, but it's still the same thing. Humanity is constantly on this cycle, always going back to the old ways. And that's what Paul Solomon is bringing up. Now, spiritually speaking, if you have received forgiveness of all your sins, if, if you have received the Holy Spirit through your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. Spiritually speaking, you are no longer part of this world. You know, are no longer part of this futile cycle, this futile treadmill. You're no longer part of that. In fact, uh, go to the, the next slide. I don't know. Oh, it went dark. Uh, first, uh, first Corinthians. Oh, no, actually, 2 Corinthians. Sorry. Well, I'll go ahead and read it to you. But anyways, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If you want to go there. Oh, there he is. It's on the screen. There we go. Okay, here we go. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Look what Paul says. Therefore, now, real quick. Uh, even though Paul is writing this, he's writing under, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is actually God's word to the church. This is God's word to us who are in Christ. Okay, so really just marinate on that. This is a passage probably you're very familiar with, but my prayer is that you would actually hear it with fresh ears. Um, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things, what? Passed away. They've come, they've gone, they're bye-bye. Behold, new things have come. You are a new creation, the old passed away, new things have come. And then what Paul goes on to encourage is the 
for the believers to live this out, live this reality out. Now the question is, why, why does Paul feel the need to, to encourage that, to give exhortion, ex- exhortations and commands for the Christians to live a, a, a different lifestyle? Well, because truthfully is even though we are in Christ, we do, we do feel the pull, the tug towards our old way of life, to doing things back on that old feudal treadmill. We feel the draw to go back there, even though we don't belong there anymore. Now, some scholars and theologians uh, incorrectly teach that as a Christian, you have two natures. You know, like if, if prior to Christ, you had one nature and that was a sinful nature. Well, the Bible attests to that. We can all agree on that. Prior to Christ, everyone has this, there's no one righteous, no, not one. You all have a sinful nature. We are dominated by sin. So, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter two, Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, stuck in our uh, trespasses and sins. But they teach once someone comes to Christ, now they're saved. Now they assume two natures. They have a redeemed, forgiven, sanctified nature, and they still possess the old sinful nature. And they're basically like two animals warring at each other, fighting with each other. And the idea is whatever animal you feed the most, it will be strong enough to overcome the other animal. So make sure you feed the good animal. You're you're sanctified and then you'll overcome sin. And that's what, I mean, maybe some of you have been taught that. But the truth is the Bible makes no argument that Christians have two natures. I mean, again, look at 2 Corinthians. What does he say? You are a new creation. The old things, your old nature, that old sinful nature stuck on that feudal circle, merry-go-round treadmill has passed away. It's come, it's gone, and it's, thank God, it's staying gone. It's dead, it's buried, goodbye, see ya. This is why uh, Paul will, uh, later in in Romans, um, I believe chapter 8, where he talks about if we've been baptized in Christ, you know, it's like, just as Jesus was crucified and died, our old self has died. And as Jesus was buried, our old self was buried. And as Jesus rose again to resurrected life, we have been raised to new life, new creation. It's no longer part of us. So then the question, well, then what's that pull? What's that, you know, magnetic pull towards the old way of doing things? What is that? Well, Paul has another word that he uses. It's a Greek word. It's called sarks. It's translated flesh. Now flesh, that word there could literally mean your physical flesh or it could, the way Paul uses it, to describe that pull towards the sinful behaviors, towards that old way of living, the draw to go back to how you used to be before Christ. Now the thing is, because we have the Holy Spirit, Jesus is residing in us, the flesh Though it is a struggle, it is not something that, is, that we cannot overcome. The flesh has no control over us. In fact, because of the Holy Spirit working in us, we have control over it. We can actually say no to the flesh and yes to God. And that's so cool. It has no uh, say in, in our lives, but it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. I'd like to go to one more passage just to kind of illustrate uh, this idea of the, the, the struggle. The struggle is real, but it's not, again, it's not an impossible struggle to defeat. Go to Acts uh, chapter uh, 19. Acts, the book of Acts, New Testament, Acts chapter 19. Now we are going through uh, the book of Ephesians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And here in chapter 19 is an account of when Paul was actually ministering in the city of Ephesus. He actually uh, ministered there for over three years. It was actually a very long time. So Acts chapter 19. Now a bit of review. Uh, Ephesus was considered the mother city of Asia. Uh, which is in now modern-day Turkey. And the reason why it was considered that is because it, had, you know, it's, it was strategically located along a 
important port city. It had uh, and, and, you know, very significant uh, roads converging in on uh, the city. But it, it, it had um, significant influence, not only just in the city, but even the surrounding area. Uh, significant influence in politics, in commerce, and religion. That's why it was considered the mother city of Ephesus. Everyone in the Roman Empire was like, that was the place to go. That was the place uh, to reside, to, to live in, not just simply visit. But uh, religiously speaking, if that's, I can use that term, uh, Ephesus was pagan, just like a lot of other cities in the first century. Rome, they, they believed in many gods and goddesses, both from the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon. They believed all those gods and goddesses. Their patron god was the goddess Artemis. They constructed a, a magnificent temple in her honor to worship her. And uh, one, uh, was it a one forget the name, but he was a, a first century historian, described the, the temple of Artemis as one of the seventh wonders of the world at that time. So it was magnificent structure. But they also, uh, in Ephesus, practiced magic, casting spells, sorcery, witchcraft. They had this uh, book that they called the Ephesia Grimata, which was a very expensive book because the way it was constructed and everything but it had all the list of incantations and names and spiritual things and you know mystery words that you'd have to recite in order to gain control of the spirit realm and and all that the whole idea was it was a city that was obsessed with power of the gods power of the spirit world and so it made sense as Paul is, enters this city of Ephesus and proclaims the gospel that God demonstrates his power in a very significant way. And one of the ways he does so is uh, there, there's these two uh, exorcists, Jewish exorcists, and they recognize the authority of Jesus. Uh, and they think you know, they're not believers of Jesus, but they recognize that Jesus is someone significant. And so they think, well, if we invoke his name while we're casting out of a, a demon, that might, you know, increase our business, you know, whatever. And, and so they do that and they encounter you know, a demon-possessed individual, and they try to do that, and the demon-possessed person is like, um, I know who Jesus is, I've heard of Paul, but who in the world are you? And it says that he, they were utterly prevailed upon, that they ended up leaving that in interaction uh, wounded and naked. So if you enter an interaction or a conflict with someone with all of your clothes on, and you leave said conflict Busted up, bleeding, bruised, and naked. Friends, that's what we call a beatdown. That is a major beatdown. He didn't just get the snot beat out of him. He had his clothes beaten off of him. I mean, it was serious. Now we pick up the story in verse 17. And this became known to all, to, to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. It wasn't just the, the Greeks and the, uh, the Gentiles who were following this, the practice of magic and you know, trying to harness the powers of the gods. But unfortunately, some of the Jews uh, were, were practicing this kind of Jewish mysticism as well. Instead of calling on gods, they were calling on angels and angelic beings. This became known to all of them, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. It was just spreading out in a good way, like, wow, this God is powerful. Verse 18, also many of those who believed, who had believed, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of, of silver, lots of money during that time, so that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You had these Ephesians who heard the message of the gospel. They believed the message of the gospel. Probably many of them put their faith and trust in the gospel. And yet some of them were still practicing their magic. Now we could look at them and go, well, shame on you, Ephesians. You should know better. But again, we got to put ourselves in their shoes. What, what happened? For many years prior to Christ, their identity was deeply rooted in this first century world that they lived in. This, is, this was the norm. This was what was accepted. And so many of these Christians who were saved and new creations in Christ felt the pull to go back to the old way of doing things. Maybe it was because it was, again, widely accepted. Maybe because it was familiar. Maybe because it 
was comfortable. But eventually, after seeing and experiencing and hearing about God, the, the, the power of God, they decided, no, 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 we're going to go ahead and put that aside. So again, I bring that up to, to show you that the, the struggle is real, but it's not an impossible uh, struggle to beat. And that leads us to our passage. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Now we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Not going to be as lengthy of a, of, a, of a passage as before. We're just going to be looking, uh, zeroing in on verses 17 through 24. So Ephesians chapter 4. Starting at verse 17, Paul says, if you're all there, he says, so this I say. The word he uses for so is the Greek word un, which means therefore. It's pointing back to the context. It's actually pointing all the way back to the beginning of chapter 4, where Paul is transitioning his letter. He, he is, he is, he's, for, the, for the past uh, three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has been um, really driving at home the believer's identity in Christ, uh, that Christ is the exalted uh, king of kings, and that we are part of this thing called the body of Christ, the, the, the church. And, and, and now in chapter four, he's transitioning. He's transitioning from instructional to applicational. He's like, this is who you are in Christ. And now this is how you are to live in Christ. And so if you're there, uh, chapter four, verse one, he begins... So this is verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the, in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now that word worthy is the Greek word axios. We looked at this a couple, a few, well, a number of weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the word doesn't mean to live your life in such a way that earns your calling, or deserves your calling. It literally means live your life in such a way that is fitting, that is appropriate, that is consistent, that corresponds to who you already are. You're in Christ, now live at, live as such. This is not a new concept. I mean, if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, you have God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel saying, you know, I am your God, I am the one who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm the one who took you out of you know, uh, the oppression of Pharaoh and your task uh, masters. And I've brought you out to be my people. And now, act like it. And he gives them some commands to follow. The law, he gives them to follow. He, he then goes on to say, be holy for I am holy. You are my people. And because you are mine, you need to act like it. Be holy for I am holy. Well, that's, that's impossible really for us as human beings because the Bible says, again, there's no one righteous, no, not one. We sin. You know, it, it's the, the, the question is not how good are you? The question is, are you perfect? If you're not perfect, then you're lost. And, and, and so what God did in grace, and mercy, and love, he, he provided this sacrificial system where instead of individuals receiving the judgment of their sins, an, an animal would receive it in their place. They would take an animal and they would kill it. But they wouldn't just kill one animal because they go on and live their lives and guess what? They sin. They're not perfect. So they constantly have to go back to the temple or the tabernacle and then became the temple and offer sacrifice. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. All these animals dead, 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 blood, blood, blood. Again, just showing the, the severity of sin. Sin is so bad, it requires death judgment. You know, it's an, it's a, an affront to, to, to God. But then Jesus came and he lived a life that you and I could never be, never be able to live. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. And he offered himself as the once for all sacrifice. So that if anyone places their faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus' holiness becomes our holiness. Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. Then Paul in, in, in Romans uh, chapter 
8, uh, he uses kind of similar language. At least you kind of get a sense of it. It's, he talks about how we are no longer, if we're in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free in Christ. Just like Israel was set free from the bondage of Egypt and Pharaoh and their taskmasters, we in Christ have been set free from sin. And now that we're free in sin, we're encouraged to live it out. That's who you are. That's who you are. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How does that look? Well, he brought up last week, we, we saw it, it was unity. You know, being, being, showing gentleness and patience toward one another. We're, we're a church after all. Uh, displaying tolerance and love and, and, and protecting this unity that we already possess in Christ. It, it looks like leaders equipping the, the saints for the work of, of the ministry, for the service of, of what God has called us to do. And, and it looks like mem- brothers and sisters in Christ maturing together in Christ. No longer being spiritual babies, but growing up and, and becoming adults in Christ. And that leads us to uh, verse 17. Uh, the first point, Paul is reaffirming his exhortation to walk worthily. And the two things he's going to bring up is that this is a serious exhortation, and this exhortation comes with authority. So let's look there. Verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm. The word affirm could also be translated as insist upon. It could, it could be translated as to testify or to address with seriousness. It's like what, what I have to say, I don't want just to go in one ear and then out the other. I really want you to get this. Absorb it because this is serious. This is, this is really important stuff. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord or literally in the Lord. Paul is not saying this on his own authority. He's saying this by, in the authority of the Lord. This is not just Paul's heart. This is God's heart for his church. And so, yes, we, 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 need, to, we need to pay attention. And so what is the exhortation? Continues on. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. That word walk is the Greek word peripateo. He's going to use that word over and over again from chapter 4 all the way to 6. And it's the idea of living your life, how you behave, how you conduct yourself. He says you Christians are no longer to walk just as the Gentiles also walk. Now, as this letter was being read to the church, you had a mixture there and some of them were technically Gentiles. You wonder, I wonder if they got a little bit offended. Like, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? And some of them who have from a Jewish background probably were nodding their head and going, amen, Paul, you testify. We know exactly what you mean. But here, Paul is not just addressing one group over another. He's, he's not addressing one group over the other. He's addressing the entire church. He's like, hey, listen, don't walk just like the, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. These individuals who are not followers of Christ, assuming that maybe even some of these Jews were following in those same bad habits and attitudes and and so forth. It's like, don't no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. Well, how do they walk? He continues on in the futility of their mind. The word he uses for futility is the, the same word he uses in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes which is that word, he translates the Hebrew word hebel, vanity of vanities. That's that same word. And it means basically the same thing. It's this idea of meaninglessness, vanity, emptiness, uselessness, a waste of time. How do the Gentiles walk? How do those who are not followers of Christ walk? In the futility of their mind, in the emptiness of their mind, the uselessness of their minds. You think, those outside the faith would be so offended right now, right? I mean, definitely they were offended back then because, I mean, Paul got arrested and eventually he was shut up. He was killed. I mean, that's how offended they were. They didn't want to hear him. But Paul's not, you know, candy coating anything. He's just telling how it is. This is, this is what it is. This is what the Lord is laying on his heart. It is inspiring him to write that these people who are not followers of Christ walk in the futility of their mind. 
Now, again, some people would say outside the faith would go, well, you know, again, that's offensive to me. You, do you know who I am? Do you know um, the, uh, the, the, the schools and the colleges, universities that I've studied under? It's like, yeah, you've, you've studied under uh, teachers and professors who have futility of mind. You've read books written by individuals of futility of mind, and you have a futility of mind as well. And so you're coming up with futile conclusions because of your futility of mind. It, it doesn't, you're not changing. Now, we, we live, again, in a, in a society because of the internet, because of access to so many things. Uh, you, we have access to different experts on marriage, on sex, on education, on health, on how to manage your finances. And, and everyone just eats it up. Oh, did you read this latest book? It's so incredible on how to, you know, uh, reevaluate yourself, reassess yourself and, you know, encourage yourself and be a better person. Oh, did you read this uh, person or did you go to this uh, you know, conference? Did you listen to this uh, podcast? This individual is just so, so brilliant. They know exactly how to help in my current situation they're they're listening to individuals so-called experts who have futility of mind they're futile in their mind and what's very sad is many christians follow after those things too oh i i I want to know, know how to be a good husband oh here's this guy he's a doctor psychologist who's like perfect he says he's like one of the top psychologists in relationships and how to how to help he's futile in his mind are you serious you're going to take his advice oh this is how someone right here knows how to handle money and oh he's so great he's futile in his mind honestly you're going to take his advice so again it sounds so funny but how many of us no raising your hand how many of us have fallen for that Oh, listen to this person. Listen to this perspective. Follow this guy. Follow this girl. They know what they're talking about. They're very intelligent. No, they're futile in their mind. So that's how the Gentiles walk. That's how people who are not in Christ walk. In the futility of their mind. He's then going to expand on this. He's, you know, the first part, Paul reaffirms his exhortation to walk worthily. And then in the second part, verses 18 to 19, he's going to say, don't walk as the Gentiles. And he's going to bring up three characteristics of, or you know, expansions on this idea of how these Gentiles walk, how they live their lives. And they live darkened, uh, excluded, and calloused. And he presents these words uh, in, in the perfect tense, meaning it's an action that happened in the past, but the results haven't changed. The, these people are still darkened, excluded, calloused. Again, the emphasis of, of today is progress, moving forward, expanding our minds, you know, evolving. No, they're not changing. They're still darkened, excluded, and callous. So let's go ahead and look at this. Verses 18 through 19. Paul says, being darkened in their understanding. And there's a bit of an emphasis here when he says being darkened. The word being is, is, a, is a Greek verb that means to exist. And he puts it in the present tense. So these Gentiles are continually existing as darkened in their understanding. Shrouded, blinded, incapable of perceiving. Now, have you ever, you know, woke up in the middle of the night, it's dark, you can't see anything, you need to go to the restroom, but you're too lazy to turn on the light. But you think that you can negotiate what's in front of you, right? You're thinking, okay, I know that there's a coffee table in front of me. I know on the right there's a, a, an entertainment center and on the couch and then the dog is somewhere around there. I think I can make it. Go. What happens? Wham, boom, ah, ah, you know, you, you, you trip over, you hurt yourself, you break your toe, you freak out the dog, it starts peeing all over the place, you freak out your wife because she thinks that there's a, you know, a masher there, and like, oh, what's going on? It's, it's just, it's silly to think that you can do that. And yet that's how the world exists. They continually exist as darkened in their understanding. Their, their mind is sick the way they think, the way they perceive truth, the way they understand the world. It's all messed up. It's all darkened. 
And again, very offensive. But Paul's not pulling any punches. He's really trying to nail something on. It's like, hey, listen, this is bad. But this is true. These people are darkened in their understanding. So many people today, what's interesting, a lot of people today understand that there's something wrong with this world. There's a lot of wrongs in this world. Um, But their conclusions on how to fix it are just way off. You know, well, the, the, the issues in this world, it's all because of, of race. It's all because of intersectionality. It's all because of intolerance. It's all because of political upheaval. It's all because of, of you know, economic disparity. It's all because of you, you name it. It just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. It's like, that's not the issue. The issue is sin. And, you know, a lot of these people that say, well, you know, I, I know how to deal with this problem. You know, follow my solution. Another person will follow my solution. Follow my solution. They're darkened in their understanding. They think they know how to fix things. But reality, it's just stumbling around in the dark. It's really foolish. It's really silly. We see that in our world, especially today, Right? darkened he says being darkened in their understanding the second one excluded from the life of god excluded means to be strangers to be alienated from the life of god jesus declared himself the resurrection and the life god is the one who gives life these individuals are separated strangers from the life of god which is really ironic because uh, the Stoic philosophers who resided in Ephesus uh, really boasted in the way they lived. They, they said that, you know, we live in conformity with nature, with the natural world, with, with life, and by extension, in conformity with the gods, the life of the gods, because it's the gods who give life. And Paul's saying, no, 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 these people who are not followers of Christ, they're aliens from, the excluded from the life of God. Continues on, and it's why, why, why is this happening? Because of the ignorance that is in them, or the ignorance that continually exists in them. The, the word for ignorance just means to not know. They don't know that Jesus is God. They don't know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. They don't know that he's Lord, that he's Master, that he's King. They, they don't know really about what salvation is all about, forgiveness of sins, a free gift, all by grace through faith. They, they don't know about the kingdom of God, being a part of the kingdom of God. They don't know about the, the Holy Spirit. They're ignorant about it. But the thing is, they're, they're not just ignorant. They're not victims because of lack of resources. Look, it says here, because of the hardness of their heart. The word hardness could mean, you know, petrified. Something that's petrified. Something that's solidified. That has become dull. You know, figuratively dullness or stupidity. It reminds me of Exodus. The book of Exodus where, you know, God is, dis, you know, is asserting his authority and his power over Egypt and over Pharaoh saying, you know, you let my people go. And it repeats again and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh, uh, a heart that's not hardened says, God, I want to follow your ways, not my ways. I want to do the things you want me to do, not the things I want to do. You know, what, 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 what decisions do you want me to make? How do you want me to serve? And, and, and so forth. A hardened heart basically is, no! Not your will, my will. Not what you want, what I want. It's hardened. And lastly, and just tragically, he says, and they, verse 19, have become, having become callous. The word there, callous, means to be past feeling, to no longer feel the prick of conscience, shame, or pain. In Romans chapter 1, one of the evidences that God has given the world of his existence, of his authority, is our conscience. Every human being has a conscience. I mean, you don't have to teach a little kid 
when they're sucking on a lollipop and another kid comes and steals that lollipop and runs away, that that's wrong. They know it's wrong. And the, the kid who just stole the, the lollipop knows it's wrong too, because why? They run away. Maybe even they laugh. Because <laughs> they know it's wrong. They have a conscience. And that was put there by God. But here's the thing. As individuals continue to engage in, in sinful behaviors and patterns and lifestyles, that conscience, that prick, gets less and less noticeable. I, mean, I get more of a serious topic here. Um, there was a, 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 a famous uh, writer and actor for a, a very popular TV series. Uh, it's today, it's a comedy TV series. Um, and uh, they were doing kind of a live table read of this uh, episode that never got aired because of its content. It was flagged and they said, no, you can't do it. And he was making a joke out of it. The, 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 the content of the episode was about abortion. And he, tongue-in-cheek, uh, entitled it uh, The Partial Terms of Endearment. And when he mentioned that, the audience went, ooh. And then they started laughing. And it got me. It's like, why did they go ooh to begin with? Because they know deep down that is dark. That is not right. But what did the comedian do? He made light of it. Made it out of a joke. That's what's happened. It's, it's, it's turned into, you know, rights for women. Well, who doesn't want rights for women? That's justice. Who doesn't want justice? It's about, you know, health care. Well, who doesn't want people to have good health care? It's about acceptance. Well, who doesn't want people to feel welcome and, and at home and feel good about themselves? It's a joke. And, 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 and that prick, that conscience is just getting dulled more and more and more and people just don't feel it anymore. It's just, eh. oh, it is what it is. And that happened, that's not just with abortion, that's with any sinful behavior, any sinful lifestyle. It's, they start off and they feel that prick, but then they pretend it's not there. Oh, I, I know I really, I feel like I shouldn't be doing this. I feel like this is wrong, but everyone around me is encouraging this and, and everyone else in society is accepting this and, and encouraging and, and, and championing this. So I'll just keep on doing it and... and that conscience eventually goes blah, 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 away. They become calloused. And, and look at the results, the tragic results. Having become calloused continues on. They have given themselves over. Now, our society is all about seizing the day. You know, becoming your own man, becoming your own woman, you know, charting your own destiny. Jesus, about self. Here, Paul says, these individuals have surrendered themselves. They didn't grab anything. They didn't take the bull by the horns. They're not charting their own destiny. They've surrendered their life. They surrendered. They gave themselves over to sensuality. This is the idea of licentiousness. It's extreme immorality for or towards the practice, the, the occupation, the trade of every kind of impurity with greediness just like ecclesiastes they they hear but they're no they're they they need to hear more they they see but they need to keep on seeing they're never satisfied that is the world that these people are part of this futile cycle this endless meaningless vain treadmill called life these people who are not christians are a part of it Now, this, again, you can think, well, this is really nasty. Yes. That's what Paul's getting at. This is nasty. So don't live like it. I mean, how many of us, just listening to this, this description here, these descriptions, would honestly think that it's, it's a smart idea to follow after that? Anyone. Even if they were not saved, I think they would even say, I don't want to be labeled in that group. And yet, that's the pull for some Christians. Back into that. Oh, back to your way of life. 
It's good. It's comfortable. It's convenient. Yay. Paul's like, don't. So he switches gears here. He's, he affirms the, the, the exhortation to walk worthy, not as Gentiles. Now he's going to move on as those who are in Christ. Verses 21 to 24. And the first thing he's going to do is he affirm our identity in Christ. Verse 20. But you, there's an emphasis there, but you, I need, I'm, I'm, he's like, he's pointing at us. He's pointing at us. This is, again, God's word for us. He's, he's pointing at us. God, this is God's word for us. But you did not learn Christ in this way, in this manner. That's an interesting way that Paul puts it. You did not learn Christ. You know, it's like me saying, I, I did not know uh, Joe this way. It, it, like, what does that mean? It's like, oh, I, I did not know, Paul's not saying, I did not know about Christ. I did not, it's not like he's talking to a historical figure here. The reason why Paul words it this way is because Christ isn't just a theological concept to, you know, make us feel like, oh, we're smart. It's not a doctrine to memorize so that we can beat an argument. Christ is a person to know. So Paul's saying you did not learn Christ in this way. You have a personal relationship with Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells within us. Christ reveals himself to us in his word. We get to know him personally. That's pretty cool. That's really neat. But you did not learn Christ this way. Continuing on. If indeed, this is a conditional sentence, which basically assumes that it's correct. Uh, if indeed you have heard him, you heard the gospel. You heard about Jesus coming, living, dying. And you have been taught in him. You've been instructed in him, in his ways, just as truth is in Jesus. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. Christians, before they were actually even called Christians, were called followers of the way. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So here, Paul's saying, assuming you've heard of him, assuming you've been taught in him, you've been ta follow, followed, taught, instructed in his ways and in the truth. Now, as a, hopefully this doesn't get a little th a thick, but um, when it comes to conditional sentences, there's two portions of a conditional sentence. There's uh, the first part, which is the protasis, or if I, may be, I may be butchering the pronunciation, but hey, go with me here. The first part is the protasis, which basically states, if this is true. And the second part is what we call the apodosis. Then this is the result. So if this is true, or in your perspective, sorry, if this is true, then this is the result. Okay, the protasis and the apodosis. Here, what Paul does is he flips it. He puts the protasis in verse 21. He puts the apodosis in verse 20. And the reason why is because Paul's trying to show us contrast between walking as a Gentile as opposed to walking in Christ. You know, again, he's affirming that we are in Christ. And, and, and if, if this is true that we're in Christ, then the result is this is what we've learned. This is what we've learned in Christ. And, and what have we learned? Well, he's going to bring up three things that we have learned to, to, to lay aside our old selves. We're going to see them in verse 22. To be renewed, verse 23. To put on the new self, verse 24. So let's go ahead and dive into these things. Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, or your former conduct, conduct of life, you lay aside the old self. You lay aside the old self. This is kind of a language of, you know, you, you put on clothes and you take off clothes and you lay it aside. You know, the idea of the old self, the old man, that's literally how it could be translated. This idea of if you're wearing old clothes, you know, your old former self, it's, it's worn, it's, it's, it's got holes in it, it's dirty, it's stinky. And Paul says, lay that aside. We've learned as people who are walking in Christ, to lay that aside, to put it away. Now, parents, when it comes to our kids taking a shower, 
Okay, they come in, they're dirty, filthy, ugh. They take a shower and we give them some, you know, commands, you know, instructions. You know, obviously make sure you don't just let the water wash over you. You know, you got to scrub. You got to scrub, use soap. Make sure you use soap. Make sure you wash your hair. And, and then after the shower, after you've dried, what do we tell them not to put back on? Dirty clothes. I heard dirty underwear. Yeah. It's like, why? Yeah, exactly. Why would you not want our, your kid to put on the dirty underwear or the dirty clothes? Well, because they're clean, right? They, they're, they're clean. They've just gotten themselves. They just took a shower. They're all nice and smelly. Why would you want to put on that old dirty clothes again? That's the idea that Paul's getting at. Is that you're clean. You've been made clean in Christ. So take off that dirty, smelly clothes. Lay it aside. Lay it aside. Have nothing to do with it anymore. Look how he describes this old self. He says, uh, lay aside this old self, which is being corrupted. Which is continually shriveling, withering, ruining, spoiling in accordance with the lust or the desires, the cravings of deceit. Sin doesn't get any better, always gets worse. That's our old self, continually being corrupted, spoiling, shriveling up. Really? I mean, do you guys, you know, trash day comes. You're like, you know what? I just love this bag of trash so much. Doggone it, I'm going to keep it for another week. It, again, it's funny because it doesn't make any sense. But it's like, why would you keep your old self? It's just, ugh, get, throw, throw it to the side. It's being corrupted with the lust, the cravings of deceit. Deceit meaning it's a falsehood, a delusion. Give you an example. Someone who considers themselves an alcoholic, they look at the bottle or whatever their choice drink is, and they're deceived into thinking, oh, this, this will help me. This will help me get through what I'm going through. This will take the edge off. This will help me sleep better. This will make me feel good. This will, this will make me have a more fun time, you know, a way more fun time at the, the party tonight. It's all deceit. It's deceit. It's a lie. Because it ain't going to do that. Now you could plug and play any other um, vice or any other lifestyle or bad habit. It says, lay that aside. Lay that aside. But the second thing he's going to talk about is to be renewed. Verse 23. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now there is some discussion as what Paul means when he says the spirit of your mind. Now, some people will take that, well, you know, the mind, it's referring to your mindsets, your, your, your set behaviors, your ways of thinking, the patterns of, of life, and, 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 and what Paul's talking about. Some, some scholars would say the mind also refers to, like, the inner person, which is more what heart, card, cardia means, but anyways. Um, they'll say, well, Paul said the spirit of your mind, because Paul's being more specific, he's talking about the spiritual side of yourself needs to be renewed. Well, there's Bible passages that can definitely support that idea. I can go on the side here because this is just my opinion after studying this passage. I take this grammatically what they call as a subjective genitive. Ooh, makes me sound smart, right? Subjective genitive. What that means is that the mind, the word mind is actually the subject of the main verb, which is to be renewed. And spirit is the thing that's acting upon the mind. So it's the spirit acting upon the mind. The spirit, because the, the, the word for to be renewed is in the passive tense. It's not something we can do. It's something that's done to us. Later on, Paul's going to talk about don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. That's also passive. It's something that's done to us. We allow it to happen to us. Now, again, this is just my opinion, because in the context, what Paul has been talking about again and again is the Holy Spirit's power and work in an individual. So that's why I take it is, is that the, it's the Holy Spirit working in our lives, renewing us as Christians, allowing the Holy Spirit to renew our minds, to change the way we think, the way we behave, the way we perceive the world. Because why? The world is going the whole wrong way. And lastly, verse 24, to put on the new self. He says, and put on the new self, 
Again, it's the idea of putting on clothes. Putting on clothes, the new self, which is in the likeness of God, being created, wait, of God, wait, sorry. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and of truth. Uh, in the first century, um, there's some evidence to suggest that when, pe- when people were baptized uh, in the first century, they, you know, after they get out of the water, uh, they would be provided new clothes. You know, obviously because their old clothes are all wet, but uh, sometimes the, the, the new clothes would actually be white to kind of visually represent who they are now. Like they've, you know, their old self has, has died, has been buried. That's what baptism is. It's like, you know, participating in the burial resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you're, you know, you're new. Now you're new. Now here's some new clothes because you're new. That's, that's who you are. You don't earn these new clothes. You don't deserve these new clothes. It's because of your relationship in Christ. You are a new creation. So, hey, guess what? You get a new pair of clothes. So take off the old clothes, stinky, smelly. You've just taken a bath. You know, dirty underwear, leave it alone. You know, we're not in college anymore. Um, Did I just admit to something right now? (laughs) My wife's not here. She's Oh, she is? Okay. Just tell her not to. We'll edit that part out, okay? (laughs) Okay, okay. Um, Yes, take off the old self and put on the new self has been created in the, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Because we're in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are declared holy again, not because of what we've done, because of Christ has done for us and because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are now new creatures. Is there still struggle? Yes, there is. And it's going to be a struggle with this thing called the flesh until we get to glory. But guess what? It's not a struggle that is impossible to beat. We can actually say, no, that is not who I am anymore. I don't have to live that way anymore. I don't have to do those things anymore. I don't have to think that way anymore. Why? Because I'm not that anymore. I am new. I am a new creation creation in Christ. So, this idea again, taking off, taking on. This is your new identity in Christ. You put on the new. What does that look like? Take off. You are no longer alone. Put on. You are now in Christ. Take off. You are no longer a loser. Put on. You are blessed. Take off. You are no longer a mistake. Put on. You are chosen. Take off. You are no longer a child of wrath. Put on. You are loved. Take off. You are no longer broken beyond repair. Put on. You are a new creation. Take off. You are no longer an addict. Put on. You are a conqueror. Take off. You are no longer a slave to sin. Put on. You have been made righteous and holy and will be so into eternity. That is your identity in Christ. So live it. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Who would want to walk like that? Instead, walk like your new self. Let your new identity guide and direct you in how you behave, how you interact with people, how you view people, how you make decisions, how you handle money, how you serve what books you read, what, what people you listen to, what websites you click on, and, and so on and so forth. Let your identity guide you. You are in Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I want to thank you again for your word this morning. Uh, it, it, is, it is pretty heavy, Lord. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not light, and it's on purpose. Paul wants to show the dramatic difference from walking as the Gentiles, walking as someone who's not in Christ, and those who are in Christ. And there's a huge d- distinction. Lord, may, may we embrace our new identity, that the old, our old selves has passed away. We are now new. 
But Lord, we will struggle. We will struggle with the flesh. And, and so we're thankful that you have given us the power through your Holy Spirit to conquer the flesh, to say no. Lord, the reality is, and it's a kind of a controversial idea, is if you are a Christian, there is no such thing as a Christian addict. Because the idea of addiction is the idea of it, how your addiction has power over you. But that is not the truth. Maybe there's some in here who need to really hear that, Lord. That, Lord, if they are in you, they've been set free. They're no longer a slave. They can actually say no. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be hard? Yes. But can we conquer it? Absolutely. Not because we're amazing in ourselves. No, Lord, we are weak. We are foolish. But you are good. And you have given us your powerful spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We want you, as this next, this, this closing song says, we want you to be our vision. We want you to be our wisdom. You are our high king of heaven. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you go ahead and stand?